0: So, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Here we are. This is the podcast that translates Donald Trump. Up. Taking an honest look at the current administration and expose the existential threats to America. I do not think COVID-19 is an existential threat to America. I think it's a serious virus, serious illness for people, and some people die. Mostly elderly people. By the way, let me give you a statistic on that right away. Okay. The state of Minnesota, which our friends at Powerline are monitoring... 80% of the people who have died in Minnesota, it's like 600 people, were in nursing homes. Okay. That's a high uh, percentage. Yeah. Let's not say it's good, but it's to say that's where the, where the virus falls and kills. Mm-hmm. Average age of people dying in Minnesota, 83. Okay. All right. Again, we mourn their loss. You know, right. we've all been to funerals of elderly people, parents, grandparents.
1: I recently went to one.
0: Yep. And it's sad. But again, I'm going to say what I said, I think, last time about Vietnam, saying we passed the number of deaths in Vietnam. Someone dies at 83, you mourn them, and you miss them forever. Someone dies at 23, the average age in Vietnam, you miss them forever, and you mourn them forever. Right. And that's a life lost. It's different. Mm -hmm. I know they're all equal. I know we're all equal in God's eyes. But when a child's life, a young person's life is taken, a 23-year-old's life is taken, it is a tragedy and a catastrophe. Someone dies at 83. Yeah, I hope I make it to 83. You know, okay? well, the thing. I mean, you know this insane. is actually past the life expectancy of a lot of people.
1: Go ahead. Right. If you don't know I mean, interrupting, what is it about that, you know, just kind of measured, thoughtful approach that, yes, every life is vi- viable. You know, we do mourn the death of our elderly. However, when you're looking at that and say, okay, you know, that's the average you know, age of those who are passing away from COVID-19. What is it about that that sparks so much? controversy and so much outrage when you say that
0: because uh there's a lot of uh catastrophists around people want to make this a catastrophe want to make this the plague want to make this the black death want to make this the apocalypse and it's not what's their motivation i don't know gloomy Mm -hmm. gloomy gloomy personality gloomy sense of life up some of its political Mm -hmm. uh there's no question That I I wouldn't say people are rooting for the virus, but they're rooting for Donald Trump to look bad. And the worse the virus gets and the more it kills, the the worse they think they can make him look. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is a kind of catastrophism. uh, People, you know, seeing this. And and, and I mean, there's a certain kind of sentimentalism about this, too. My gosh. We have been here before. 1968, the Hong Kong flu Mm -hmm. killed 100,000 people. Population ratio would be 160,000 today. We didn't shut everything down. And by shutting everything down, I insist, and I think the numbers are going to show it, we have killed more people. More people have died
1: than from the COVID virus. It's interesting that you bring up that political situation because I have friends in Maryland where uh, Governor Larry Hogan is yep. the governor, yep. he's yep. a Republican, yep. who seem to be all for Larry Hogan when he seemed to be at odds with Trump and President Trump and things like that, however, when he announces that Maryland's going to reopen certain counties and things, they just throw it all out, all the goodwill for hogan is all gone he 's a typical republican he 's in trump 's you know uh, uh, bag and trump 's using him like a puppet and i 'm thinking, wait a minute, you know yeah. when he was when you thought he was you know, opposite of the president on things, you were all for him. The minute he sensibly opened things and says, hey, Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Maryland has high numbers, we'll leave that up to the county executives. But, you know, St. Mary's County, Allegheny, those that have small numbers reopen, and then they just they, they throw them away. Uh, it's, yeah. it's all political, a lot of it's political. Political, and, and I, I think don't get Deeply psychological. You know, yeah. the first piece Seth and I wrote, Seth
0: Leibson, audience knows who he is. We talked about. 9-11, let's roll. Mm-hmm. And on this one, for a lot of people, was, let's roll up in a ball. Mm-hmm. Attorney General Bill Barr said, you know, why are we reacting by hiding under the bed? Mm-hmm. Now, I'll, I'll give credence to, you know, early on, we didn't know. Right. And we had this stupid guess from, guess is what it was, <laughs> from this guy in, uh, in Oxford, mm-hmm. Neil Ferguson, who said 2.2 million Americans are going to die. Mm-hmm. Not true, not ever true. But uh, that traveled around the country. Then Mario Cuomo, well, I think was probably worse for the country than he was for New York. Although he wasn't great for New York because this guy sent sick people with the virus into nursing homes. They right. went back to nursing homes, and we lost a lot of people that way. But uh, he said the it's coming. It's coming to America. It's a bullet train. It's coming. It's going to knock everybody over like it knocked New York over. Yeah, don't think so. Don't think so. And New York isn't knocked over like New York is knocked over. (laughs) Upstate New York is nothing like New York City. Right. Sympathies for all those suffering, uh, deep regrets for those who've lost their lives at whatever age. But this is no time and no opportunity and no excuse and no grounds for destroying a country and its economy and the well-being of its people. We'll get into more details on that later. Joining me today is Dr. Samuel Vissier, assistant professor of psychiatry and co-director of the Culture, Mind, and Brain program at McGill University in Canada. That's where uh, our friend Charles Gradhammer got his medical degree. Really? Yeah. We're going to talk about his piece, The Disastrous Mental Health Consequences of Secondary School Closures. He wants to open the schools back up. My gosh, this professor of psychiatry at a university is, uh, is with Trump. My goodness. Oh, How that happen? Anyway. Uh, and we'll read a few emails. First, I'd like to talk over a few things. Uh, you know, I don't want to say anything about the Michael Flynn thing right now. It's in, we're in media res, we're in the middle of this thing. I want a wait to list sorts out all these people in the Obama administration who went for the unmasking. What an interesting word, isn't it? Yeah, unmasking. Yeah, yeah. It is. That, uh, you know, that uh, the, 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 they, they pushed the button and said, yeah, unmask him. Let's listen to what he's saying. American citizen. Uh, Let's see. The president, our president now, is saying the former president should be made to testify about this. Senator Graham, uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, doesn't think so. I don't know if that will ever happen, but it looks like some things were rotten in the state of Denmark. There was some real corruption here. I have very little doubt about that, but let's wait and see. I don't want to pronounce on this yet, as everybody has said endlessly, there's nothing illegal about unmasking. Uh, It was illegal to leak it to the press. But uh, Biden does seem to be in a vulnerable place here because he said he didn't know anything about it. He didn't wasn't involved, and then he's one of the people who requested the unmasking. Could he have forgotten that it? it's a big deal? But you know, you got to be consistent. Joe Biden forgets a lot of things these days, mm-hmm. so, right, right. <laughs> so I mean, It's possible, yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. 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 By the way, I I made some news. I guess last week um, I was on TV and uh, uh, I mentioned to the producer. I, she said, what do you think about Biden? I said, "Nah, 50-50, he's not the nominee. Mm-hmm. Well, Brett Baer asked me about it on Special <laughs> Report on Fox. And I said, yeah, I think 50-50. Okay. Why? Because a lot of Democrats are unhappy mm-hmm. about his um, being the nominee. Mm-hmm. They're not enthusiastic. There's a huge enthusiasm gap. The guy is doddering a lot. He's just messing up his talking and his words and his sentences. And he's got six more months before he's elected. Right. Uh, everybody's got to look at his vice president choice if he's the nominee in a way we haven't looked at anybody.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But we'll see. I still think there's a, sh- there's a chance. Um, would it be hard to take him out? Sure, because the people have voted him in are through the primaries. It's not impossible the guy would have some self knowledge. Mm-hmm. His wife would say to him, You're not up for this. It's not going to work. You've served your country. Call it quits. People get as far as he has. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Not if they're political creatures. But still, I, I still think
1: fifty-fifty. Well, it's interesting because I mean, you talk about that, but then also this whole you know Me Too thing. I mean, I'm seeing videos more and more circulating on social media about look how creepy this encounter was, look yeah, how yeah, creepy yeah, that encounter yeah. was. Look at Touchy Joe. Look yeah, at yeah, Anti yeah. Joe. Yeah. No, and this, this, this. If you take the lack of
0: enthusiasm, worries about this. Mm-hmm. The inconsistencies, the brain
1: lapses. And then the fact that he just can't get out and, conv- and, and 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 convince me. We can't get out in politics because of COVID-19. No, he can.
0: I mean, who says he well, can? Well, you know
1: what? That's true. He can. <laughs> he can. He can get out with a mask. <laughs> he can He You're can right. do
0: a William McKinley. William yeah. McKinley ran yeah. his campaign from his front porch. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to stay in the basement. <laughs> That's just a good point. That is basement good point. Biden. I mean, what, <laughs> he can get out. I that's mean, true. you can get, right. he can address a crowd, have mm-hmm. people
1: space at six feet. Yeah, he can now go to Maryland golf courses and speak to people if he likes. Well, that's, yeah. that's right. I mean, that's right
0: next door in Delaware. Right, he have to stay down there. Well, that's true. You're right. You're right. He doesn't. I mean, he can go outside and talk to a group of fifty people, like like the president. Mm-hmm. He could even look like the president. He could do a press conference like the president does with mm-hmm. people spaced and they're all wearing masks. Right. <laughs> he does not have to stay in he the doesn't. basement. There may be method in that madness. They may want to keep them under wraps.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: So we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Anyway, what this underscores, you hear our enthusiasm and passion about this uh, discussion. We're in in election season. I don't know if you know it, but we are in election season. And the COVID news is kind of fading some because things are getting better despite what the catastrophists <laughs> uh, want to say, you know, uh, 800,000 will be dead, a million, whatever. Things are getting better. Test case, Georgia, where everybody jumped on Governor Kemp, including the president, sure. said too soon, too soon for this stuff. Numbers are going down. It's two weeks, more than two weeks now, and the numbers are going down. So, um, I think they'll continue to. could it resurge in the fall? Sure it could, but uh, we'll be a lot uh, a lot readier than we were this time. right when it surprised us. So um, sports. can we say a word about sports please? It looks please like we're going to have some
1: well the nfl released their season yeah their schedule for the 2020 yeah. 20, 2021 season um nascar is live this weekend right we've yeah. got live golf it, oh well, you may not care about that but we've got live golf this weekend i don't care about nascar either but, uh but <laughs> dustin johnson and roy McElroy. I
0: really i'm, I'm in it's, favor of sports uh, yes.
1: any sport at all will do i'll watch whatever <laughs> so but yeah so this sunday at women's Jessie field, field hockey. hockey
0: oh boy may get in trouble for saying that <laughs>
1: Well, why would you get in trouble for saying that? I don't know because
0: women's oh my field hockey. No, Bill, completely. Bill said he was so desperate he'd
1: watch women's field. Well, out. no, it's a very competitive sport, from what yeah, I hear. I've never uh, seen. You've never game. seen? Never paid <laughs> it for a ticket? No, no. But uh, yeah, no. This Sunday, two p.m. Uh, check out NBC. Uh, Roy McElroy, Dustin Johnson in a skins game against uh, Matt Wolf and Ricky Fowler. Uh, Man, Ricky, guy, Fowler. Ricky Fowler, yeah, exactly, your guy, ex- precisely. My good friend Ricky Fowler you gave a golf ball to your son. Yes. At three years old, and, made and his, then he rolled made the ball life. under the bed. Couldn't find it for a day, but you got it back. Yes, and it's sitting in
0: a proper place, exactly on the mantle in, in my office. In your office, <laughs> great. Okay, all right. Let me let me do some stuff. And this is—I uh, don't know that we'll do another full kind of full treatment of COVID like we've been doing, but I just want to say this. Um, one of the voices out here who's been really smart, I think, is a guy named Scott Atlas
2: formerly of Stanford,
0: Stanford Medical School, and um, a medical research radiologist, all sorts of things. He um, was on Martha McCallum show and said the following. Let me just read this to you, what he said. We are focusing on the sensationalistic modulations of a hypothetical projection model, which means as everybody's looking at this model, you know, 2 million million die, 500,000 going to die, 250,000 are going to die. It's a hypothetical model. It keeps changing. Mm-hmm. This one, this one, they're using, you know, at the University of Washington, keeps changing. He said we're focusing on that instead of using what we already know and what is fundamental. The fundamental assessment of what the cost of the actual policy is. What is the cost of the actual policy? The policy of total isolation, he says, is totally destructive, and it's literally killing people. Literally. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. He says. 150,000 new patients with cancer are diagnosed every single month in the United States. Wow. 150,000. That's not 150,000 cases that are rule out cancer. That's cancer. Most of these people are not getting diagnosed because it's all about COVID, and they're afraid to go, and they've been told they can't go. I had two procedures. They're not, you know, life-threatening or anything, but, I, you know, they're matters that matter. Put off. Just, you know, can't do it. Uh, nothing like that, but... Um, Most of these people uh, who would normally uh, get diagnosed are not getting diagnosed. Half of the people on chemotherapy are not going in for their chemo. Mm -hmm. I went through chemo. You, The audience knows I had Mm -hmm. cancer. I went through chemo. It's serious. You got to do it. It is. Two-thirds of women are not getting their pap smears for cervical cancer. Two-thirds of vaccinations in California's children are not getting done out of fear of vaccination. There's an irrational fear, Dr. Atlas says, that, that the politicians who are sort of medically naive themselves have instilled upon the public that this bizarre sort of notion and belief in the model and doing all this stuff will stop COVID-19 at all costs. It will not. What we need to do is realize that we need to target in regard to this virus. Older vulnerable people need strict protections. Testing entrants at uh, nursing homes, for example, don't do what Cuomo did. and Send them in there. Uh, and, uh, you know, just be smart about this, not not just treat everybody the same and everybody gets locked up, but make a distinction. Now, we all know the states are starting to you know open up. Right. And I think that's a that's a good thing. One writer, R. Reno, who is the R.R. Reno, who's the editor of First Things publication, uh, says um, we're guilty of a disastrous sentimentalism. Everything for the sake of one physical life. So that's just not true. We don't give up. If we did, we'd put a hundred percent of our budget for healthcare. Right. We wouldn't let anybody drive. Wouldn't mm-hmm. we alcohol as right. well as automobiles? Mm-hmm. It's a balancing, um, and and so that's you know that's the case. Um, a few other things I was reading, and this is not about the U.S. but about the world. Start with the U.S. number: the Hong Kong flu, nineteen sixty-eight. One hundred thousand Americans died, the equivalent of one hundred and sixty thousand today. Okay. Uh, estimates from UNICEF uh, and World Health is that 420 million people will be plunged into extreme poverty because of the shutdown of economies around the world. We think of our country and see how it's done to our country. We're a strong, rich, prosperous nation. right? right. Think of these poor nations, um, which means 420 million people will be making less than $2 a day. Uh, Economies around the world will contract at a rate of about 6%. And while we have 300,000 deaths worldwide from COVID, we probably have uh, more than that in terms of starvation and disease because, uh, again, mentioned this before, children around the world, particularly in developing nations and undeveloped nations, are not getting their polio shots. Wow, yeah. And their measles shots and other shots. So, you know, when people say, well, don't put money ahead of public health, How about putting public health ahead of public health? L.A. Times did a long story in which they said 130 million more people may starve, starvation. Wow. Because crops aren't getting to market. Right. And um, uh, 30 million of those will be children. So let's count everything. Let's count everything. And let's be fair, uh, fair fair-minded about this. So much going on. We're getting into this election season. And we're so grateful for our listeners. Yes. And we're grateful for their emails. Let's go through a few
1: emails. Yeah, and by the way, you can email uh, BillBennettPodcast at gmail dot com. We have a lot of emails. We'll get to them throughout the you know next few episodes of the podcast. But you know we can't read every single one. No, 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 no. Uh, right. You know in one in one show. But we'll Especially get to all of them. Especially with this audience that's growing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, as it's, Seth would it's, say, hundreds <laughs> of people. A little more than that. We well, got a little more than, more than that. Just a few more than that. A little more than that. So this is from uh, Bill uh, Hennigan from Goose Point Park, Michigan. He says, I was so happy to recently find your podcast. I will now be listening every week. See, growing right there, right? Uh, I was an avid listener to your radio show and was devastated when it ended. I have read several of your books and enjoy your Wise Guys episodes on Fox Nation as well. If people want to catch Wise Guys, they can just... You got to get the app, the Fox Nation app, and right. watch it there. Right. Uh, you are a true patriot and measured voice of reason. Your candor, intelligence, and goodwill uh, have never been more needed by God's greatest nation. Thanks for all you've done and continue to do, and please know how much you are admired and appreciated. Well, since as you led into that by saying can't read all the emails,
0: <laughs> uh, we certainly you certainly picked. He picked it. I didn't. <laughs> right. I'm certainly glad you picked that one. That was very nice. Thank you. <laughs> don 't let me get the big head though go ahead
1: exactly. Uh, this one from cullen Coates, our buddies uh, from uh, crystal bay solutions l l c uh, so recently on a podcast, we read an email and we were wondering well crystal bay solutions where's you know where 's this uh, the emailed back is colin code 's bill. I appreciate you quoting me on your podcast of april twenty seventh uh, You asked where uh, we are about Crystal Bay. Uh, we have lived in San Fr- the San Francisco Bay area until a few years ago uh, when we moved to a town east of Sacramento. Uh so far the first time as a native Californian, I'm represented by one of the six remaining Republican uh congresspeoples. Uh and so at least I am somewhat less disenfranchised out here <laughs> as the <a> Crystal Bay. <laughs> um we formed an online software company 16 years ago and we and were discussing possible names during a, a short vacation to lake tahoe crystal bay is the deep very clear northeast section of tahoe and the imagery seems appropriate for what the company is doing hence the name nice so that's the name of crystal bay sounds solutions. like a nice place to be nice yeah. place oh, to work oh yeah yeah. yeah yeah sure uh let's see your may 4th podcast with joe Fark- are you looking to work for crystal bay solutions Maybe. Okay. Okay. See how this works out. Maybe we can send a resume and fill out an application. Your May 4th podcast with Joe Farkas got me thinking uh, about a couple of aspects of the current COVID Uh, controversy number one uh, the decisions about when and how to allow people to live their lives as they wish are being made by politicians and bureaucrats uh, who have secure incomes and often multi-million dollar pension accruals and generally no experience whatsoever with how businesses are run Uh, the businesses that are entirely responsible for the employment and trade that provides the very taxes that support their incomes so it would be interesting to have yeah. yeah those decisions made instead by regional county and cross country committees formed entirely of folks who actually have something to lose and pay the taxes
0: you know uh it's interesting to observe freedom uh you know it's been said you know people don't appreciate something until it's taken away mm-hmm. people are just bursting at the seams to get out right to get out of the house to go out the Wisconsin Supreme Court just like a day or two ago said that the shutdown ordered by the governor was illegal.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: And bars, restaurants open. They showed clips from a bar last night in Wisconsin. I don't know that I'd be doing that. Right. Not at my age and so on. But there they all were. They were all sitting at the bar, sitting hanging together and just Mm -hmm. wanting to have a beer. And um, in many forms, the people's voices are being heard. And I, I wonder how this breaks down. I know in terms of the polls, many more Republicans are in favor of opening it up than than Democrats. But there've got to be Democrats who are in favor of going out and sure, getting absolutely. a job and so on. Mm-hmm. And and I keep I want to ask the Liberals this. I think we mentioned this last time. You know, the rain falls on the just and unjust alike. The rain falls on everybody. But as uh, as I as I remember, when I did a study of earthquakes. You know, how how serious an earthquake is depends upon how secure the ground is on which you live. Mm -hmm. So if you were in, you know, gee, why are are these uh, earthquakes and why are these tornadoes always so hard on the poor people in the trailer parks? Mm -hmm. Because they don't have a firm foundation. Mm -hmm. And the people who are hit the hardest by this shutdown are the people who are at the entry level of work or work get paid by the hour, uh, disproportionately minority, disproportionately young uh, first, second, third job, uh, and, you know, they're out of luck. They're out of
1: business. The media is fine, I right. say to you, mm-hmm. with your media pass, <laughs> I am essential, and so I can still. You're uh, essential. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> it's interesting you bring that Washington point up. Washington Post is essential. <laughs> is it? Yeah, no, you're right. New um, York <laughs> Times is essential. Don't get, don't get me started. So, <laughs> um, so uh, just before I get back to the email from uh, Cullen Coates, uh, you there's a colleague of mine who was in D.C. to do some media work this week, and he lives in Nash- – well, he lives just outside of Nashville, but, he, but his station is in Nashville, Tennessee. And when he came here in the D.C. area, he was saying, you know, it's a different world where he lives. I mean, there's just fewer numbers of people who have contracted it, even fewer numbers of anyone who's who's died from it. And everyone's just itching to get back out, you know, in the suburbs there in Nashville. And, um, uh, but it goes to your point that there is a measured way of doing, you know, places where there's just not, where it's a little more rural and there's just not a lot of people living on top of each other, not a lot of cases. There's no problem with reopening for those folks. Why should they have to live by, you know, uh, by standards in Queens or the Bronx or in, you know, downtown Washington, D.C. and Northwest D.C.? It doesn't make any sense.
0: No, outdoors.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's a lot of America that's outdoors. You know, you fly across the country and if you fly on a clear day. Mm-hmm. You look down and you don't see, you know, yeah, no. the extension of Manhattan. Yeah, you don't see Chicago. You see fields and you see mountains and you see prairies. Right. And you see dots, you know, places and clusters of towns and villages and cities. Uh, there are, of course, huge cities. But, um, you know, what we've talked about with Joel Farkas about the exodus from the big cities. This whole thing, I think, is probably going to lead to more of an exodus from the big cities. Oh, absolutely. Let's go back here.
1: Okay, point number two. Um, it is also interesting to see how many of our governors utilize the federal system of governance for their own convenience. As you well know, politicians tend to focus on what's tactical, uh, advantageous, and less on any internally uh, consistent philosophy of governance. So they are happy to demand federal money for Medicaid funding, but then announce their federal privilege to be a sanctuary state. They denounce Trump as tyrannical when he tells them when and how to lock down their states, but then beg shamelessly for federal bailouts when they are given control of the lockdowns. Uh, and are so drastic that they close their economies and destroy their tax base without having the foresight to actually cut their budgets. Gavin Newsom faces a fifty uh, plus billion budget shortfall and is demanding federal bailouts when he was the one demanding control of the economy shutdown in California. Perhaps a more thoughtful approach would uh, have been better advised we 'll make sure that our buddy Joe Farkas gets this email too
0: yeah let 's let's send it to him let 's send it to him.
1: all right. I think we can wrap it up on that. Um,
0: and, and, you know, we'll just we'll stay tuned. You stay tuned to us. Uh, you know, as I said, I think we're shifting into the political, you know, season big time. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot going on, just a lot going on. Yes, uh, Plenty to talk about. Any final thoughts from you?
1: No, no. That's If anyone wants to send an email in, send it in to uh, com, and we'll, we'll read them throughout the next, you know, few podcasts. And what are you doing this weekend? So this weekend I'm playing golf. Uh, I'm going to go to one of my favorite courses, Blue Mash in only Maryland. I know the owner, Joe Hills, uh, and uh, uh, a buddy of mine, Lawrence, is having a birthday kind of celebration, and he wants to play golf, and so we'll, we'll abide with all the guidelines. Um, as, far, as far as I know, you know, you pay outside the clubhouse, so you go to the first tee and just try to remain six feet apart from the guys you're playing with, and... And you play. You so, put the ball in the hole. Do you, can you take the ball out of the So hole? from what I understand, they have some sort of styrofoam, something blocking the ball from going in the hole. But if you hit that, it's just as good as – which would be great for me because I don't putt well. So. Oh, you get a little edge. Exactly. COVID edge. exactly. The COVID edge. <laughs> the COVID edge. Uh, exactly. Well, Got to be good
0: for something.
1: So I'll be looking forward to that this weekend. All right. Very good. Thank you, Claude.
0: You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. All right, let's welcome for the first time to the show, Dr. Samuel Vizier, assistant professor of psychiatry and co-director of the Culture, Mind and Brain program at McGill University. Dr. Vizier, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, hello. How are
0: you? Good. Thanks so much for joining us. So, I, I'm reading from uh, the Washington Post yesterday. Three months into the coronavirus pandemic, America's on the verge of another health crisis. With daily doses of death, isolation, fear, generating widespread psychological trauma, federal agencies and experts mm-hmm. warn, warn that a historic wave of mental health problems is approaching. Depression, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicide. Not a surprise to you, I Great. expect. Tell us why.
2: Well, you know what, what concerns me about this. Uh, in fact, I was already concerned prior to the COVID epidemic. As you know, there was already an epidemic in the in the U.S. Uh, of you know death of despair, uh, an epidemic of loneliness, uh, an epidemic of anxiety, especially among our youth, especially among the so-called uh, internet generation of those born after 1994. We had already you know noted a really worrying erosion of resilience among young people and I know you've you've done a lot of work on, on you know the impact of not so good education reforms on, on this very problem. Um, you know, the the impact of screen time as well on on mental health, on on anxiety, Uh, and now with the, you know, the the, the general panic, you know, having to do with the, you know, the public response to the idea of the COVID epidemic, all these problems are likely to significantly worsen in in the future. And and so, writing from, you know, the perspective of of a behavioral scientist who studies the impact of the Internet on on mental health and society, but also in speaking, you know, I, I, as a parent, I'm, I'm, I'm frankly concerned with you know, the, the, the impact of the measures uh, you know, against the pandemic that, that many of us have reason to believe are going to be much worse than the disease itself.
0: I say so. One of the things that's uh, bothered me a lot in this whole debate... Uh, is this notion that we're we're you know we're, we're talking about money versus lives? How about lives versus lives? Um, I, I've suggested yeah, yeah. I don't know for sure, but I've suggested that the the cost of the lockup, the lockdown, the shutdown is going to be much greater in terms of human, just in terms of human life. Not even the quality of life, but life itself, suicide, um, <clears throat> drug overdose, um, child abuse, etc. Uh, I don't, I can't put a number on that. Um, but they can't seem to put a number on the COVID either. It, <laughs> these models keep 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 changing. But all I'm asking for is a fair counting on both sides uh, of the equation here.
2: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And, and you know what is what is really worrying from the public health perspective is that we already have plenty of good data from past economic crises. You know, on 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 the toll of you know loss of employment, for example, on you know increased suicide rates. You know, increased substance abuse, as you pointed out. You know, increased you know domestic abuse. Um, so so. From a you know, good public health perspective, it would be really important to be collecting data on, on these very problems right now and for someone to just you know, run the math of the yeah lives versus life, as you're saying. I really agree.
0: Yeah, um, you were kind to say what you did about me, but I, I had these two jobs in succession, uh, one for Ronald Reagan and one for George uh, Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, I was the secretary of education and I was the nation's first drug czar, director of national drug control policy. I remember people would say, boy, you really switched fields, didn't you? And I said, I wish, but I didn't. <laughs> a lot of overlap a lot of uh, too much too much overlap and i was very taken with uh, your piece which we linked up on our page the disastrous mental, mental health consequences of secondary school closures why particularly on the schools and the school kids and why particularly on uh, the, the middle and secondary school rather than the little kids
2: well, you know, I was—I I wrote this piece, you know, primarily addressing the Canadian context and, and the context in, in the province of Quebec, where, you know, to our government's merit, elementary schools will soon be reopening in Quebec, which I think is a great step towards, you know, reopening the country and the economy. But secondary schools will not, um, um, and and it's really unclear epidemiologically why the decision is being made, um, and so I was simply commenting on, uh, you know. You know our, our nation's youth and, and adolescents who are uh, who are going to be facing these really drastic, you know, isolation situation for for many more months. We're going to be deprived of opportunities of you know face to face socialization. Um, we're going to be confined in homes with, you know, the increased risk that we've discussed of, you know, worsening mental health, you know, domestic abuse, uh, and I'm also I, I'm also worried about, you know, the, the the many pedagogical pitfalls of of distance education. You know, you know, most of, of what children get from an education, you know, cannot be. Uh, it, it simply cannot be replicated online. And because, as, as I mentioned, you know, many of us in the mental health research community were already really worried about the impact of screen time on everything from, you know, learning, you know, retention, you know, uh, anxiety, uh, you know, negative, you know, upward social comparison and, and, and all these things that are going to continue to worsen. And it's just does not really make epidemiological sense to me uh, to justify further isolating these poor kids.
0: Uh, let's key on the word epidemiological. I talked to a uh, a woman yesterday, producer for a um, TV, uh, uh, TV news show, whose uh, children are in um, private school in New York. But she said the uh, the closure of the public schools. Do people really think this meant that the kids are safe at home? Uh, it's pretty hard to keep them indoors. She said that many of the streets of New York, you don't see it on TV, but are, are, are inhabited by packs of teenagers who are running around not observing social distance, by the way. You wouldn't expect the 14, 15, 16-year-olds to do it. You know, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 of them. Uh, and uh, engaging in, Lord knows, Lord knows what kind of behavior. Seems to me it's bad for them in every single Way And the, back to the epidemiology, the only thing I've heard, once you say to people, this isn't like the flu, we, you know, we don't close the schools down for the flu and we lose, you know, some number of, of kids every year because of the flu. But the argument I've heard back is, yeah, they don't seem to be, the kids don't seem to be very effective carriers of this, but, uh, or they don't get sick themselves, but if they bring it home to their grandparents, uh, then someone might die. Well, what, would you say, what would you say to that in terms of getting them back to school as an objection to getting them back to school?
2: Well, it's important to point out that, you know, I'm a behavioral scientist. I'm not an infectious diseases specialist. Uh, So, uh, you know, I I would refer people to, you know, what I consider to be sound and good studies, you know, some of which I think you've alluded to, that uh, you know, children and, and, and youth appear to be at a very Uh, low risk of of transmitting the disease Um, and for those you know elderly populations that do appear to be more at risk you know it may make sense to you know for those populations to be temporarily isolated you know for measures you know along the lines of what Sweden has done and and, uh, you know against the initial predictions that uh, Sweden is going to be a, a catastrophe well the country appears to have done very well in fact they're you know they're their their um, fatality rate has been lower than that of uh, other EU countries like Switzerland or, or Portugal or Ireland that did implement measures early on.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, interesting you say that they're, they're, they don't they don't seem to get sick. Uh, I think that the number of children who died from covid-19 in america is, is less than 10 fewer than 10 and i think all of them at underlying conditions which is another funny business going on here uh it seems to me in, in in the counting but the other thing and you pointed out in your article and it took me a long time to figure out this is primarily uh, a a a a a, a, a a, a problem of mortality for the old the quite old and and people with underlying conditions and i say that with no self-interest i'm in my 70s and i have a couple of underlying conditions i'm you know i'm ground zero here but um it's it's very different it doesn't uh shakespeare you know says fall on the just and unjust alike it does not fall on the young and old alike in any way
2: right 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 uh, absolutely um and you know they in but there are still studies showing that there was a really good study from France where they, you know, that you might have seen, where they traced this one, I think, nine-year-old child uh, who had COVID and who transmitted it to no one. So it, it seems that really the risk of children transmitting the disease to the vulnerable is very, very low, and, and again, just does not justify the kinds of measures that we have in place right now. So so the, the question that I think is pertinent to ask is, is why have we seen this, this cascade of really extreme lockdown measures for which it appears that there was really not much evidence uh, to justify these are things that had never really been tried before. So I'm more, you know, as a behavior, behavioral scientist, interested in you know trying to understand how anxiety and, and panic and, and irrational behavior spreads. And it seems that, you know, the, the Internet and the, the manic news cycle uh, is, is, is a, is a really important vector for this.
0: I was noting this morning, I'm um, talking to someone else that, uh, you know, governors here are saying they're going to open up and, you know, and now people can go back and get those elective procedures in hospitals. Uh, uh, most Americans are still scared to death. They are scared to death of this thing because they have been frightened into it. Uh, and um, the anxiety level is uh, showing you, you, have, you have a great example in, in your article about people virtue signaling and screaming at each other. Listen to this. Uh, there's a, a, a friend told me here in North Carolina, where we are now, uh, was going down a major market and the market has made it the one way each of the aisles is one way and um this poor fellow was going down canned goods the wrong way and someone screamed at him this is all that you're going the wrong way in canned goods you're going to kill somebody really? I mean, but that's that's where we are. My wife was screamed at the other day as she was uh, walking that she wasn't wearing a mask. We were in a place where there aren't very many people. And so there's that going on. But that's that's just a kind of that's part of this general anxiety which has been built. Um, Why are we doing that? I mean, is it because simple because, uh, uh, you know, uh, the blood cells, you know, uh, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, Is that why? I mean, you know, I've been watching these curves every day, and it seems to me a lot of the media is totally impervious to good news. They just don't want to. Yes. As soon as soon as we heard this thing had peaked, I turned on the TV and said, "Yeah, maybe it's peaked, but it's coming back worse in the fall." What is this interest in apocalypticism?
2: Yeah, well, the information consumer interest uh, and really just demand for uh, bad news and negative news is uh, is a well. You know understood phenomenon in, in in cognitive science is grounded in in you know what cognitive scientists call the negativity bias, which is that you know for fairly well understood evolutionary reasons we have developed uh, a preference for anything that conveys information about potential threats uh, because you know those you know overestimating threats confers a clear survival advantage, and you know the human species evolved in in conditions that were very volatile, very dangerous in fact, for most of human history. You know, up until the last world war, every generation has known pandemics, uh, you know, like great depressions, wars, uh, disasters. So in an actually dangerous environment, you know, this psychological bias works quite well. But we are, we've also been living, you know, uh, in conditions of, of of really unprecedented, you know, peace, prosperity, you know, low crime, you know, comparatively. So we have seen anxiety. Uh, on the rise. So that had been, again, well studied prior to the COVID crisis. So for example, as as the crime rates went down in the U.S., fear of crime was up. So one of the Historically, novel factors here is really the internet, smartphones, the fact that we're constantly connected to information, and our mind again really craves negative information. So, if you if you even examine, you know, like recent past pandemics, like even H1N1, uh, which may have caused up to you know 600,000 dead uh, worldwide, so that would be more on COVID for now. Um, well, people didn't have smartphones at the time. This was you know 2008, 2009, just before the iPhone came out. So it did not become uh, a media event, or or also, you know, when I asked, uh, you know, even my grandfather if he remembered, you know, the, the 1968 and 1957 influenza pandemic that caused, you know, millions of dead, and, and he didn't, because back then it just did not become a, a media event. So, so again, I, I'd like to emphasize that the, the biggest problem now uh, it's not, is there's no conspiracy you know, from the news you know, to make sure that we're manipulated into reading bad things, it's just this is what the consumer wants you know. negative news generates more clicks, more shares, um, and that's about it.
0: Yeah, here's a theory but I've been sort of thinking about this, and there was a famous essay by a political scientist in the 60s, Richard Hofstadter talked about the paranoid style in American politics, and I, then I was just going through and trying to remember and make notes and looking things up. We had the population bomb in the in the 60s, 70s. You know, the world's overpopulated. We're all going to die. There's not enough food. Uh, then we had uh, the uh, nuclear winter. Um, mm-hmm. Again, quite apart from the merits of these things. Uh, the global warming, obviously. Uh, and it just seems we, we need to get it to a fever pitch, particularly in a time when things are pretty good, one of my favorite novelists is Walker Percy. Are you familiar with his work at all?
2: Um, no, no I've not read getting... Okay.
0: Anyway, anyway, he says, "Why is it that people feel so bad when things are so good?" Um, <laughs> Uh, He said, why is it that these Southern boys living in affluence and playing golf long for a war to go to? Um, This is way beyond my pay grade. This is much more (laughs) at at your pay grade. But why why are we getting so crazy when, you know, this is manageable? We're going to lose some people, probably, you know, 80,000, 90,000, most of them quite old. Uh, with underlying conditions, and I, you know, I, you know, the first shock I had was when I found out the average age of people dying in Italy was 80. Well, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I no, no, I'm sorry. That's a loss, but um, let me just rant one more second and then get your reaction or maybe get some therapy from you. Uh, people say, well, we've now passed the Vietnam War in total. Excuse me, the average age of someone dying from this thing in the U.S. is 73. The average age of a kid in Vietnam dying was 23. Now, I grieve for Grandpa. But I don't grieve forever for Grandpa. But for my, for my 23-year-old son, I would grieve forever. You know, we're not all in this together. I mean, but why, why can't we see this? Why do we have to? And, and if you bring this up, and I have brought this up, people have said each life is valuable. I, I know. I know. um I'm getting frustrated, as you can see, but it is, it is it is the cultural aspect of this that's bothering me the most. What, what is this great sort of mental breakdown we're having about this? We can manage this. There'll be losses, but how come people don't bring up the fact that we lose 50,000 people a month to cancer and to heart disease? I, I need help, Dr. <laughs> No, go, go ahead, please. What, what is, what, <laughs> well,
2: you know, what is one it? of the one of the demographic differences in how people respond to the crisis that I'm very interested in, and for which you know we sadly don't have a lot of data, is is you know the, the age difference. And my you know my hunch just just from reading the news, from talking to people. Uh, is that it's, it's mostly, you know, younger generations, um, who are, who are most worried. And ironically, precisely those people who are least at risk, where, you know, your, your average baby boomer, people who have actually, you know, uh, met real adversity in their lives, uh, and were able to develop resilience seem to be less worried, even though they are statistically at, at, at a higher risk. So, you know, I also, to some extent, understand this current crisis as the very perverse logical conclusion of a culture of fragility that was already rampant and, and dominant among you know generation z uh, you know, younger millennials and in, in the internet generation uh, you know even this sort of uh, strange obsession with, with the victimhood culture which uh, you know those of us who work on university campuses have uh, we, we've had to deal with you know, these problems of, you know, negative, constant negative rumination, you know, constant voicing of, of grievances, constant, you know, overestimation uh, of risk, you know, panic buttons on, on campuses, uh, for for example, in, in the wake of the Too crisis. Uh, McGill University campus where I work, you know, the students themselves demanded, you know, more security presence, uh, on campus, uh, without realizing that, you know, McGill University campus in Montreal is probably one of the safest places, you know, that, you know, you, you, could, you could live in. So, so, so I, I wonder if you've given any thought to that, to this, this, this sort of culture of fragility that, that we had seen, you know, spreading from, uh, from college campuses and, and how COVID and the response to COVID might relate to this.
0: I'm talking to my peers in their late 60s and 70s. We're ready to get out, you know. I, you know, Maybe epidemiologically we should be locked up and kept behind closed doors. But I find most of the older friends I have or my age or want to go out. But I think it's unforgivable to have scared the children to death that can't be good for them. I watched, I've watched a couple of shows and, you know, as former secretary of education, but asked to comment on this. I said, quite apart from just 60 million kids out of school. I, first thing I thought about was math. You know, if you're away from math for three months and you're 15 years old, you're back to 12 years old. You lose it all. You know, you gotta, you gotta just keep plugging at this stuff. But all the other damage, the only good thing I saw, and I want to come back to you and your, your focus on young people, is I watched a TV show that was otherwise horrible because it was basically scaring the hell out of children uh, but they asked the kids what do you what do you most miss and these are little kids you know five eight six seven eight and almost all of them said i miss being with my friends i found that mm-hmm. very very comforting because that suggests they're not all slaves to the machine yet is that right is that fair to the internet yes yes yeah,
2: yeah, yes for sure and, and, and you know there's always a positive side to everything and and you know with, with adversity or you know a, a crisis of any kind or even a health crisis we typically we typically become you know mindful of and you know thankful for a lot of things that we have taken for granted so I think for a lot of young people, this is an important moment to to realize just how you know how important socialization with their peers is and 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 perhaps you know one of the possible positive outcomes of this, once this crisis is over, is that kids will spend, you know, more more time with other children and perhaps less time in front of their devices. That that would be really great. But I I, I do worry though about. uh the the anxiety that is transmitted to children from their parents, uh, you know, from from a pedagogical perspective, from a psychological developmental perspective, you know, it's important for children to get a sense that their parents uh, um, can deal with a situation, you know, that to be reassured. It's uh, it's really damaging for children's uh, self-esteem, for children's healthy psychological development to see their parents panicking.
0: And if we think about going back to school in the fall... I've been watching and, you know, I was secretary of education. I had my fights with the teachers unions, a lot of them. I I also tried to work with them and uh, a lot of frustration, but I'm noticing the demands. We'll open up our middle and secondary schools, but we want to be assured that um, everybody's tested every day and that social distancing is is observed thoroughly. Can we expect 600 teenage kids to observe social distancing when they're? back in high school. Really? Can we expect that to happen?
2: Well, I don't think we can expect that to happen, and I don't think we should either, because, again, I was quite worried about, you know, from a public health perspective, about the trend of loneliness, you know, isolation, atomization, social fragmentation. And so social distancing was already, in a sense, a, a sort of a social pathology, you know, reflecting communities that that were in many ways broken. Um, So it is is quite worrying to me that we're we're expecting children to do that and that we're desiring that it should be the case, uh, that, that, yeah, that that they should do that.
0: We were already social distancing in a way that matters more, is what you're saying. We were already alienating and atomizing. And uh now we just made it physical, but that yeah that distancing was already there we've just made it we've just made it worse. Um, what happens? We've got apparently fourteen major um, investigations into, into, vaccination. I know, I know that's not your field, but I'm, but I'm talking about the, again, the psychology, the mental aspect of this. Uh, not, my guess is given the state of science, the way we do things here, Canada, elsewhere, we're going to find a vaccine or something. That's very, very effective in the next, the docs I talk to tell me we got to say next year, but it's probably going to be August, September. Given, given the intensity. Once we find that, does this go away, or are we in this kind of paranoid mental breakdown state of mind?
2: It's really difficult to predict um, for several reasons. Um, one is that there are, as we're already seeing, you know, uh, individual differences, uh, cultural uh, and community level differences in, in how people respond to the crisis. Uh, what is universal to the human species is that behavior is contagious. So, for example, um, if uh, it seems to be open, you know, there's, there's a vaccine, uh, you know, the news cycle changes, people start going out into parks, going out onto the street, as we're already seeing in some places, then people will automatically feel reassured. They will outsource their feelings and desires and behaviors to, to other people around them, and, and then the crisis will soon be forgotten. Uh, if the general mood of panic and anxiety continues to linger, well, then it will continue to linger because negative affect is more contagious than, than positive affect. So, again, it's really, it's really difficult to predict, but there, there will be differences, uh, and, and we've already seen something which I find you know, quite worrying and unfortunate, a uh, uh, you know, strong kind of political divide. It's, uh, I have been quite concerned with how politicized uh, the response to the crisis has been. Uh, and and the, you know, to simplify, you know, the, the right has more of a you no-big-deal, know, back-to-work perspective, and, and the left has more of a catastrophizing perspective. And I think this, this does not help um, I, I really wish that uh, our, our our decisions and our news cycle was, was driven by by data and science more than by political tribalism, which which was of course already a problem in in America. Yeah, there was
0: uh, there was no way that was going to be avoided, particularly particularly in an election year. Uh, as 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 a red state Republican, former uh, fairly left uh, uh, liberal, I'm a I was a college professor, philosophy professor, and uh, f- for for a while I was like all philosophy professors american universities left or leaning left um then i became i think the only one who was regarded as centrist um i just thought it would be good to have a different point of view somewhere in the philosophy department but um, it was unfortunate it's a good thing that these states which are opening up are not all red states. They're not all Republican states. A number of Democrat states are are opening up. But yeah, we're going to have we're going to have the politicization. I I talked to one liberal Democrat friend. I can't quote him for obvious reasons, but he said, I I, I don't care. You know, I know we're going to find a vaccine. I just hope it's after the election because I don't I don't want this thing to happen soon. Trump to get reelected. So, you know, let more people die just so, you know, we can get Trump out of office. Pretty callous view of the world. But. Let me come back to what you were saying about the negative being stronger than the positive. So we see pictures of these people on the beach in Newport. You've probably seen them, right, in California? Mm-hmm. And I guess I guess you've already answered my question. Wh- which is stronger? When you look at that, say, I- hey, I'm... I want to join them. I want to get me out there by that water or I'm going to go punish them. I'm going to go wave my finger at them. Is the negative stronger than the positive? I mean, Will, will more people coming out and going out and going to work encourage more people to do that or will it encourage more people to yell out the street, you're killing somebody as someone's on their way to work?
2: Yeah. So, so this is virtue signaling, shaming, calling out, you know, this is again a Fundamentally normal, universal, you know, human institution or, you know, where a very tribal species. Um my hunch is that this tends to happen online, again, more than in real life. If there's a beach full of, you know, happy families having a good time, uh, it's going to be difficult for a lone person to go and, and sort of point the finger. And, you know, it's pretty difficult to imagine a situation like this escalating to, you know, uh, I, 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 I don't know, some kind of a riot. I think this, this, would, this would not happen. Um, so, again, you know, good mood and, you know, happy, you know, relaxed behavior is going to spread contagiously in some places, and then that will be called out online primarily. Uh, but I, I yeah, I, I, have, I have difficulty imagining, you know, this kind of in-person calling out escalating to anything very serious as as people continue to relax and, and come
0: out, got to let you go. I know you're a busy, busy guy. But um, as people, I've, I've always wondered about this: as people let it out, vent online, is that a release valve that actually has something to do with them being better in person? Get, get all your bile out online, and then be a reasonable human being once you're done.
2: I think because the, 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 constraints of, uh, everyday social life are significantly reduced online. So, so it's easier to, to revert to kind of bad behavior. And, and there's, there's of course, you know, the, the inadvertently positive aspect of this calling out is that, you know, among the in-group that is calling out the other out-group, you know, this, this promotes a sense of, you know, solidarity, of, of shared meaning, and, and, and a, and a shared purpose. Um, and it's interesting, yeah, it's interesting to see how people do this online more so, uh, as, as opposed to offline, where, where it seems that the effortful rules of, you know, Everyday civic behavior and civility seem to prevail, which is why I'm I'm always a big fan of real face-to-face interactions as opposed to online interactions, which which I really believe is is a a significant public health risk, uh, if not an emergency already. I I really wish we we as a society would find a way to, to unplug more.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of a famous philosophy professor at Columbia University. I remember a lecture he gave in which he said, by the way, um, my wife makes all the important decisions like where we live and where the children go to school. But I, I decide when to write a letter to the New York Times. He said that I write an angry letter to The New York Times once a week, really angry. I get all my bio out. And then once it's out, I'm prepared to be a very good husband and father, friendly and in good spirits. So I was just wondering if the same thing happens online. We behave better in person than online, right? I mean, in general. I mean, the anonymity, too, correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, we'll see. Uh, Very much appreciated your article. We thank you very, very very much, and uh, I wish all the docs were like you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure. You are listening to The Bill Bennett Show.
0: So, um... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you liked that interview with Professor Vessier, mm-hmm. let us know. Uh, one of the reasons is we, we always like feedback, but second, we like to send stuff to people who are on to reinforce them, to encourage them to come back on mm-hmm. and, to, and to get their message out. So let us know. Um, <coughs> fascinating. Good for him. Good for him, this whole larger thing bothers me, Claude, quite apart from the covid this this larger psychological thing. what is this about? the apocalypse is coming you know um I mean this is a serious thing, and people die and we have to take public health precautions but it's not the it's not the black plague it's not um, the spanish flu it's um, it's manageable and we'll survive it and what is all this? we'll see what happens when we find that vaccine or the uh, you know things that will ameliorate the conditions and keep people from dying. We'll see what the reaction is. Uh, will people go looking for another catastrophe somewhere else? I think there's a disposition to do that abroad in the land right now. Okay, that does it for today's show, Claude. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. squeezing you, you can follow me at Twitter at at William J Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Just search uh, Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. I know the answer to that one. You share the podcast with family and with friends. We'll catch up next week.